You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Brought to you by Sage Summit Live, the virtual conference that provides all the highlights of Sage Summit from the convenience of your desk. Celebrity entrepreneurs, insightful workshops, absolutely free. Register at sagesummitlivestream.com. If you think about the push that helped bring to power the Workers' Party, right? It was all... Push or push? Push, push then. Not the Munich sense. No, no, no. Hi, and welcome back to Bloomberg Benchmark, a show about the global economy. It's Thursday, August 4th. I'm Dan Moss, Executive Editor for Economics at Bloomberg in New York. I'm joined today in the studio by my co-host, Kate Smith. Hi, Dan. You know, Kate, few of us need reminding that this year's US election is playing out like no other. Just when we thought we'd heard it all, slavery injected itself. Michelle Obama reminded us that slaves built the White House. And do we remember she was immediately sniped at by Bill O'Reilly, who opined that the slaves were at least, hey, well-fed? Well, we figured out that since slavery and all that it connotes have popped up on the national stage, it might be an idea to look at just how much of a relationship slavery and everything connected to it has with international economics. And yes, I know we mentioned Brazil just last week, but with the Olympics due to start this month, what better region to focus on, or rather stay in, than Latin America? And Dan, it's of course important to note that at the outset of this, we're not just talking about slavery here. You know, most of the world's nation, they practiced enforced unpaid work at some point in their history, and including, of course, here in the U.S. But the difference, and I think here's really the heart of the matter, is that some nations clung so long to their plantation-based economies that they never developed the institutions to make that leap into the industrial societies. Here to help us unpack that is Viviani Rodriguez. She's probably better qualified than any person here at Bloomberg in New York to walk us through this and help, you know, untangle this. Viv, you are the managing editor for Latin American Economics and Government, and you are Brazilian yourself. Yes, uh, I was born in Brazil then, raised here, uh, but absolutely born there. And you've also worked in Argentina? Yes, so I spent some time in Argentina, some time in Mexico. So when it comes to Latin America, I've been, uh, fair to say, I've been all over the place south of the Rio Grande there. So what's the link between traditional agricultural economies and the political and economic upheavals that have dominated headlines in Latin America? 
What's the starting point here? How should we begin to frame this? Well, it's a very fascinating topic. And, and as you said, a lot of people just go back 20, 30 years to try to explain a lot of the, the, the problems and the struggles in places like Latin America, right? When you think about Brazil, and if we are uh, willing to go back further, right? And if we go 100 years ago, a little over 100 years ago, Brazil was a country that abolished slavery in 1888. I mean, it actually started phasing out slavery in 1871. So it's not too far away from the whole uh, war here, or the civil war in the United States. But it did it a little bit haphazardly in the sense that it was not a, it was mass scale slavery. It wasn't like in the United States concentrated in, in a, only like in the southern part of the country uh, here in the United States. And we didn't have a lot of policies really trying to, okay, we're going to end the plantation system and make this a modern industrialized based economy, right? So basically what Brazil did at the time was just uh, replace slave labor with very low immigrant labor coming, mainly from Italy. And that persisted in Brazil, I would say, for 30, 40 years. From Italy? Well, a lot of, yes, Italian immigrants. Basically, what we had is like massive waves of immigration in the late portion of 19th century in Brazil. And until, I would say, 1920s, 1930s, the country did not really thought about the process much in trying to make Brazil a viable industrialized uh, economy. Uh, now, to be fair, uh, Brazil is by no means the only commodity-dependent place on Earth. Australia, where I'm from, uh, has certainly had its share of vulnerabilities linked to commodity prices. There's New Zealand, uh, there's South Africa, there's Norway. What's unique here? Well, first, I mean, we have different cultures. We have different, you know, the model in which uh, Brazil was colonized was very different than some of the countries that you mentioned, right? Uh, I mean, a big difference between the United States and Brazil, of course, was that for maybe 200 years, 300 years, that the Portuguese who colonized Brazil, they set up the plantations, they set up the farms, but they didn't really populated the country, right? I mean, the owners of these farms stayed back in Portugal, and only, like, Portugal really, like, moved to Brazil, the court moved to Brazil in 1808 when uh, they were fleeing, uh, fleeing from Napoleon. Uh, and that ended up contributing to the independence of Brazil in 1828. I mean, this, this podcast is really great because we're talking a lot of history in Brazil. But the reality is, I mean, Brazil for many years, right, and for many decades, remained heavily dependent on an agribusiness model. We did have big bursts of trying to promote industrialization in the country, namely after 1930s when you started bringing the auto industries, the steel industries, heavy electric machinery, right? I mean, uh, and uh, that's how Brazil has started to diversify and start of being one giant farm, right? Producing cane and coffee. And actually most of the products it produces today, except for soy, uh, I mean, and trying to become an industrial powerhouse it managed to fulfill part of that, right? If you think about it, I mean, Brazil, you know, the industry, industrial GDP in Brazil accounts for close to 10% of the country's GDP. Uh, the auto industry is gigantic, steel, mining, all of that, right? Uh, but the reality is, and this is what's very interesting, we 
and more recent to Brazil history and to some of the Latin American, uh, other Latin American countries too. We ended up having and being plagued by military dictatorships in the 1960s and so on and so forth. And that really, it's when it took the turn for the worse here. Yeah, and Kate is dying to ask you a follow-up <laughs> on the military. I am. I'm fascinated by the connection between military coups and their economy. So how has that played out in Brazil? I mean, this is a con- and actually the entire continent um, of South America. I mean, the continent seems to be plagued by military coups. I mean, I'm thinking back to the 80s, and most of those governments were under under army rule at that time. So why has LATAM in particular had such a struggle with this? Well, let's try to uh, just qualify it a little bit more. When we're talking the big Latin American dictatorships, we're mainly talking Argentina, Chile, and Brazil, right? Um, and, and, it, and it comes, I mean, they, they were in the making for, I would say, maybe decades, right? But you have to come back and think the 60s, think about the Cold War. The world was really divided into, you know, liberalism, U.S.-centric policies, and the, the red menace in a certain way, right? Uh, and these countries were countries that were very influenced, I would say, Latin America, you know, by the uh, what happened in Cuba in 1959. Che Guevara, you know, was born in Argentina. So the, the so there was a, a Plus the income inequality, right? And, and again, getting back to the slavery point here, Brazil is a country that struggled to make the transition and had a good chunk of its population disenfranchised from the get-go, right? And this income inequality, so the, the whole the socialist approach, right, was always very, very tempting for a good large portion of society. And what happens, obviously, is that in 1964, we ended up having a military coup in Brazil and we ended up becoming under military dictatorship until actually officially 1985. Right, now link this to the economic structure for us, okay? Did the imposition of military rule effectively freeze economic development? Not that it freeze economic development, but it took only to one side, I mean, Armies are usually, I mean, they take over, but they're not the best managers, right? And especially in a large economy like Brazil. So it's all about let's build infrastructure, let's employ people, let's build a lot of dams, right? let's control this economy, these five-year plans. Think a little bit Soviet Union style, right? So they're very good in, in, in these gigantic plans and aspirations on paper, but the reality of not having an industry that supplies all this, uh, uh, modernization, investment in technology, so on and so forth, what you create is giant inefficiency throughout uh, the economy. So so what it happens is that Brazil, especially after the oil shocks of the 1970s and everything, it started coming to the 80s really, really in very bad financial shape. And what was it about the economic development of these countries that brought the military into the political system in the first place? Again, I hate to hark on about this, but they're not the only commodity-dependent economies. They weren't the only economies caught in the Cold War. What happened here? Well, let's talk first, again, qualify a little bit. Let's talk about Brazil, different than Argentina and Chile to to many degrees here. But we actually enjoyed a certain degree of financial and even economic stability. The early 60s in Brazil were considered a period of stability and and of growth. It was more a political, ideological sense of crisis that actually precipitated the crisis, I'm sorry, the, the, the military coup, than actually an economic crisis, right? Different, and now we're jumping back to just what happened last year. I mean, the fact that Brazil 
Brazil's economy is in real bad shape, have contributed a lot to the impeachment of uh, President Rousseff. We're going to have a word from our sponsor and then Kate's going to come back and ask about polarisation in Brazil, how it's affecting the economy today and how it's rooted, Viv, in what you just talked about. Brought to you by Sage Summit Live, the virtual conference that provides all the highlights of Sage Summit from the convenience of your desk. Celebrity entrepreneurs, insightful workshops, absolutely free. Register at sagesummitlivestream.com. I think the natural question for me now, when as I'm hearing this, is, I mean, how racially polarized is Brazil? I mean, Viv, you spend a lot of time in Brazil now. I mean, can you can you give us a little bit of like boots on the ground color of what it's like? Yeah, so it's, it's a very interesting uh, thing about Brazil, right? So the first census of Brazil, which was in uh, 1870, I believe, or in 75, uh, you know, we got to be a little, I'm not a historian, so maybe the dates are not precise, but basically divided the population only in two classes, right? Slaves and non-slaves. And uh, it found out that 15% of the population, this is at the end of the 19th century, uh, were comprised of slaves. And by and large, slaves meant, you know, black slaves brought to Brazil against their will uh, from Africa. What happened is, is that for a considerable portion of the 20th century, Brazil, you know, and in the census showed that people always qualified themselves somehow as mixed race, right, or even white. Coming to 2010, we've seen a, quite an interesting shift here. For the first time in Brazil, uh, you know, recent history, the census um, uh, showed that Close to 51% of the population in Brazil, and we're talking about 200 million people, the overall population, define themselves as either black or mixed race. And that is actually a gigantic shift in Brazil because this means that they are the majority. And then for the first time, Brazil is beginning to accept itself as a country that is not predominantly white. And, and that is a novelty. It was, it was, it's big, I think, for Brazil to, to see itself and admit to itself and to the world that that's how it is. Okay, so link that to the deepest recession on record that Brazil is suffering now and the impeachment of the president. Well, that's not, I'm not sure if this is the reason why we had the biggest recession in Brazil, but a little bit like in the United States, I mean, income inequality is good. So, so the uh, lowest, the poorest strata of society in Brazil is predominantly black and mixed race, right? I mean, the black uh, portion of Brazil society is the one that is the disenfranchised. Unemployment is higher. They have less access to um, health care, bank accounts. So, you know, all kinds of studies show that, right? If you think a little bit about the impeachment, but before, if you think about the push that helped bring to power the Workers' Party, right? It was all... Say push or push? Push, push then. Not know. the Munich sense. No, no, no. Okay. The push that brought to we were to talking power. about the military. Yes. Okay. That brought to power the Workers' Party. It's obviously, you know, their platform has always been to try to address income uh, inequality in the country. And they cater a lot to the northern and northeastern part of Brazil where, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, we have predominantly poverty and higher unemployment rates. So with all of the things we've discussed, it, they've created this kind of political and economic culture of, you know, grab what's mine while I'm in the office because God knows how long I'll be there. I mean, how does that kind of attitude in 
in government and politics also, I mean, like Dan has been saying this entire episode, connect that for us. What's the connection to that and the economy and why they're in this huge recession? Well, the recession can be explained by many factors. I'm not, I, to be honest, I'm not sure that demographics is the biggest determinant of Brazil's economic recession. But obviously, when you have large countries with large populations where there's a lot of wealth concentration, right? I mean, you are prone to to you're less, I mean, your ability to withstand shocks, and this comes to the commodities and maybe you, the parallel to the Australia's and the, and the, and the New Zealand and well. the labor market issue. I mean, these are more fractured societies. Therefore, again, the ability to withstand a shock or a downturn, I mean, it's, it's severely diminished, right? Because then you quickly disenfranchise an even larger portion of the society that loses their job, that loses their credit cards, that loses their access to everything. And you task the system that cannot absorb that loss anyway, right? So if you think about Brazil, think about how like the the middle class miracle boom that took place in the last, in the beginning of the the 2000s, quickly almost evaporated uh, in just a matter of years in the sense that the minute people started losing their jobs, I mean, the entire system crumbled. So one of the legacies of slavery and that plantation structure, which you said earlier continued after slavery was abolished, is that you have a huge group of people in Brazil disenfranchised, yet have not benefited from, say, a civil rights movement, and that partially explains the polarization today. Well, it's fair to say that, uh, you know, Brazil has struggled to complete that uh, transition. There's never been a civil rights movement. No, you're right. Not in the sense that we had here in the United States. There was not something as organized or perhaps even so dramatic as in the United States. Complete different histories. But Again, I mean, it's always in Brazil, things are almost like soft, right, in a certain way. That's why, hence the what we saw at the census with people themselves qualifying themselves as of black of, or mixed race uh, um, origin, it's very key to a nation. Now, first, you need to know who you are before you can start demanding the right things from your own government to begin with proper representation. Right. I mean, it's not a question that in Brazil, I mean, until very recently, mixed race, black, you were underrepresented and even women underrepresented in government. This new interim president, Hammer, was seriously criticized by naming an entire cabinet comprised of white men after he took over. So no Loretta Lynch, no Condi Rice. Nothing like this. Uh, I mean, not as much, not not in the way we should, Brazil should, for a country of that size. We had one or two, uh, we had one uh, chief justice in Brazil, uh, you know, a couple of years ago. We have a minister here and there, a lot of, I would say, sports figures, popular culture figures, artists, right? But we, we are far, far from having a... a a black or mixed race president, even though I think that would be a you know something that Brazil has to aspire to. Let's zoom out for a moment because the kind of the issues that you're talking about right now are fascinating, not only because they intrinsically are, but I mean you could swap out Brazil for so many other countries, um, specifically in Latin, like we're talking about right now. So what I mean, when from what you've seen, I mean what what are some of the lessons that other countries in the region can take from Brazil to avoid falling in these footsteps? Well, I mean, first, when you say lessons about let's be 
preventing from, for example, getting into a big crisis that we're seeing right now. I mean, obviously, we have models in Latin America that a assign a lot of power to the presidents and the presidentialism is very uh you know one person can have a lot of sway in these economies right think for example what's happening in in venezuela mm-hmm. right okay that could be de facto you know people discuss if it is actually a democracy or not especially at this stage but you have systems that create and comp- and, and concentrate a lot of power into one single person to begin with and then this is just on the political side but economically speaking Again, I mean, uh, you know, we have to try, these regions have to try to go uh, transcend the agribusiness, one client type of model, right? Education, it's a big deficit throughout Latin America. Try to impose societies. And again, I mean, have societies that are more equally distributed, you know, better representation, better income distribution, so on and so forth. I mean, uh, Brazil, it, it's, a, it's a good example of how actually quickly everything can evaporate if you don't promote real stable reforms in the base of the country. So given this persistent political and economic lopsidedness that you've described, let's look into the future for a second. So is this whole democracy thing just a fad in Latin America? No, I don't think so. I mean, especially coming from a, uh, if you look at these three countries where, you know, experience longer and, uh, you know, Chile, Argentina and Brazil. I mean, you have now a generation of people who were born and are beginning to come of age and even vote, you know, that grew up under a democracy. These people will not return to a non-democratic state. You know, I mean, Brazil would not allow that to happen. Society is not such that will, you know, press is free, uh, process is due course. I mean, yes, there's been questions about the whole process and the legality of the process uh, in Brazil uh, regarding President Rousseff, but it was overturned by the Supreme Court. So now, on we so did forth. exchange some emails <laughs> the evening of the attempted Turkish coup. You sure about this? <laughs> well, obviously, once you, if someone seizes an opportunity to put the tanks rolling on the streets, especially if in a situation of a severe unrest, right, it's always tempting. Uh, you know how it is. Once, once the tanks are out there, it's kind of hard to put them back, right? Uh, and then obvi- obviously everybody wants to prevent that situation. But, I mean, societies in places like Brazil are nowhere near what they were in 1965. Well, Viv, thanks for joining us. You're doing a terrific job running economic and government coverage in Latin America. Benchmark will be back next week, not about Brazil. And until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, as well as iTunes, Pocket Cast and Stitcher. While you're there, take a minute to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And let us know what you thought of the show. You can talk to us and follow us at at Daniel Moss DC, at by Kate Smith, and Viv underscore Rod 13. Did I get that right? You did. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Brought to you by Sage Summit Live, the virtual conference that provides all the highlights of Sage Summit from the convenience of your desk. Celebrity entrepreneurs, insightful workshops, absolutely free. Register at sagesummitlivestream.com. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.